Section 12 of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 The Cobdenite Doctrines of Trade and Non Intervention. Part 4. Cobden's admirers have sometimes denied that he went so far as this. Sir Lewis Mallet, for example, points out that Cobden never positively affirmed that non intervention by arms must be absolute but though he may not have affirmed it in so many words it is the inference from all he said wrote or did now there is of course much in this that invites criticism but before criticizing it is as well to understand the whole case seeing that here as always cobden has reasons to begin with let us be clear that Cobdenite non-intervention is not to be confused with a policy of greedy or cynical national selfishness. Cobden was beyond all gainsaying, cosmopolitan in his outlook. Was he not called an international man? The hopes he built upon free trade are evidence enough for this. For though it was his prime concern to convince Englishmen that free trade was sound business, there are noble passages in which he strikes a loftier note and touches the more spiritual issues it is because i do believe that the principle of free trade is calculated to alter the relations of the world for the better that i bless god i have been allowed to take a prominent part in its advocacy i have been accused of looking too much at material interests nevertheless i can say that I have taken as large and great a view of the effects of this mighty principle as ever did any man who dreamed over it in his own study. I believe that the physical gain will be the smallest gain to humanity from the success of this principle. I look farther. I see in the free trade principle that which shall act on the moral world as the principle of gravitation in the universe, drawing men together thrusting aside the antagonism of race and creed and language and uniting us in the bonds of eternal peace this same cosmopolitan spirit appears in other aspects it was no part of this non-interventionist's ideal that england should not act upon the world on the contrary there were certain things he told his countrymen they could do and he urged them with passionate emphasis to do them one of these was to paralyze the action of military and militant powers by steadfastly refusing to subscribe to war loans loans for the cutting of throats and though it is not the possible cutting of throats but the certainty of a bad investment that plays the main part in his arguments the fact remains that if only this ingenious plan could have been carried out england would have intervened to some effect in preventing the cutting of throats by cutting the sinews of war another device was the submission of international questions to courts of arbitration a great cause in the advocacy of which cobden must always be remembered honourably as a pioneer still another was international negotiation for a general reduction of armaments for which every nation then as now longed yet which all nations together then as now seemed impotent to achieve but above all there was ever before his eyes another and more excellent way in which great britain could act upon the world for it was his conviction that if our country or any country had but the wisdom and the self-control to hold its hands from armed intervention 
it would furnish forth to the nations a shining example of national prosperity and happiness an example which would become only the more effective when other nations came bitterly like magnified prodigals to realize what it means to squander wealth in permanent armaments to face the periodical ruinous cost of war no matter in how just an intervention to heap up debt to dislocate commerce to groan under taxation to sorrow for the dead it is therefore emphatically unjust to the manchester school to say that in a greedy narrow insular selfishness they cared for nothing but their own country far from it they were cosmopolitan they had a vehement desire to act upon the world the question was how and their way was the way of peaceful national industrial and commercial example it is further to be remembered that cobden absolutely repudiated all national responsibility for armed intervention there are those who think that a country like ours and indeed that all countries hold their power and their armed forces included as a trust it is not in them to believe that a great and powerful nation ought to play the mere spectator in view of movements by which the whole future of millions of the human race in europe or beyond europe is being for generations to come decided and least of all if outrage is being done and freedom trampled in the dust by barbarous or rapacious powers they believe with mazzini that here if anywhere a nation has a mission not so cobden he absolutely repudiates such a view do you suppose he asks that the almighty has given to this country or to any country the power and the responsibility of regulating the affairs and remedying the evils of other countries partly it is that england's hands and indeed no hands are clean enough but partly and perhaps mainly the faith it appears again and again in his pages that god is over all and that providence will right wrongs and check wickedness without our help we are no more called upon he cries in one passage which may be taken as typical to wrest the attribute of vengeance from the deity and deal it forth upon the northern aggressor than we are to preserve the peace and good behaviour of mexico or to chastise the wickedness of the ashantis it is a large assumption but it stands as a fundamental article of cobden's creed to this trust in providence we must add a distrust of governments this was deeply rooted and unwavering just as in domestic questions cobden turned away with the dogmatic individualism of a laissez-faire politician from the socialist doctrines of the fools as he called them who supported peel and graham on the factory acts so in the larger world of international relations he has just as little faith in government action here he would fain banish for ever as a superstition of senile whiggery all diplomatic meddling with the fancied balance of power which he denounced as a figment this grew upon him and his misgivings were not to be dispelled by any extension of the franchise and the passage from whig to radical government radical and indeed republican at least in theory though he was even to the extent of endorsing vox populi vox dei 
he was not minded to place the people in power without regarding it as the people's highest wisdom not to set their trust in governments late in life he defined governments as a rule as standing conspiracies to rob and bamboozle the more i see of the rulers of the world so he writes to bright in his fifty-fifth year the less of wisdom or greatness do i find necessary for the government of mankind how could a man be expected to believe that standing conspiracies to rob and bamboozle were the instruments for working out the purposes of providence amongst the nations of the world as little intercourse as possible betwixt the governments as much connection as possible between the nations of the world that was his ideal it is an even stronger or at any rate a less controvertible point that all armed intervention is as a matter of fact to the last degree uncertain in its results there are two things we confound says cobden in a weighty sentence when we talk of intervention in foreign affairs the intervention is easy enough but the power to accomplish the object is another thing this is not timidity it is not necessarily defeat he has in view but the costly unsatisfying half-success which makes so many nations sorrowfully wise after the event finally against this doubtful gain there is to be set what is never doubtful the cost the cost which to this prosaic and practical man with his homely ideal of industrious comfort and peaceful citizenship resolved all the pomp circumstance heroism and chivalry of war into nothing other than in bentham's phrase mischief on the largest scale nor were his protests limited to war they were as strong against the panics and surprises that load the nations with the burdens of armed peace that costly armed peace which in the words of gambetta threatens to reduce the peoples of europe to beg at the gates of the barracks not the most hostile critic can deny that at any rate cobden's writings and speeches are a manual on the voracity not only of war but of armed peace in the name of every artisan in the kingdom to whom war would bring the tidings once more of suffering and despair in the behalf of the peasantry of these islands to whom the first cannon would sound the knell of privation and death on the part of the capitalists merchants manufacturers and traders who can reap no other fruits from hostilities but bankruptcy and ruin in a word for the sake of the vital interests of these and all other classes of the community we solemnly protest against great britain being plunged into war with russia or any other country on behalf of turkey all this is forcible and indeed it is not only so forcible but in many respects so convincing that it becomes the more important to be on one's guard against certain assumptions and fallacies with which these arguments are interwoven for if it be not a figure of rhetoric it is an assumption and nothing else that non-intervention is part of the divine scheme of things where if not in history are the divine purposes and methods with nations to be read and who can deny that in the world as history reveals it war has been so inextricably interwoven with the course of events and with what we usually call progress that he who makes so bold as to say that the armed struggles of nations are no part of the divine plan 
leaves us wondering and in the dark as to what this divine plan would have achieved had battles never been fought or won we cannot say we do not know it was an article of cobden's faith that the virtues in the long run always go with strength and the vices with weakness one hopes so but if this conviction is to rest on the teaching of historical fact the sifting process and the results have been wrought out by the energies of war as well as by the energies of peace not that we are called upon to contradict cobden here this would but substitute two dogmatisms for one enough to lodge a protest that this whole question as to the methods of providence in history is too vast too perplexing too metaphysical to be settled by assumptions cobden is not entitled to claim without more proof than he furnishes that providence is on the side of non-intervention any more than those of a different way of thinking are entitled without proof to assume that providence takes the side of the strongest battalions nor can one accept the fallacy for it is nothing else that the intercourse between communities is nothing more than the intercourse of individuals in the aggregate and therefore to be conducted on the same peaceful principles the analogy does not hold within the barriers of the nation we can leave the free competition of man with man or trade with trade or party with party to pass into pitch of utmost tension only because we can rest assured that behind all this there is a strong and stable government which can prevent competitions and rivalries from issuing in civil strife but this moderating and restraining power is just what we look for in vain when we pass to the relations between nation and nation international law no doubt exists but what are its sanctions there is a european concert hesitating in its deliverances and slow in its actions there are treaties and courts of arbitration though as cobden was the foremost to urge they are never to be entrusted with any powers of enforcing their deliverances who will contend that all these put together can exercise upon nations especially strong ones more than a shadow of the control and restraint exercised over individuals by the law of the land of which they are citizens the fallacy is at its height in certain remarks upon national cowardice if cobden argues that which constitutes cowardice in individuals namely the taking of undue and excessive precautions against danger merits the same designation when practised by communities then england certainly must rank as the greatest poltroon among nations this may be well as a rhetorical protest against panics repeatedly proved groundless but if it be meant as a serious attempt to place on the same footing the precautions which one nation takes against others and the timidity which in a law-abiding country arms private houses with burglar alarms and loaded revolvers the analogy is of the flimsiest for of course the unsuspicious fearlessness of men toward each other in a civilized society goes with the knowledge that even if advantage be taken of this confidence there is yet an iron limit which arrests all encroachment on security of person or property this is of the rudiments of civil freedom but of course this immunity from aggression is unfortunately just what one nation cannot count upon as against other nations 
so long as there is no supreme coercive authority above all nations to step in with a thus far and no further and to proceed to inflict condign chastisement upon the aggressor now it would be absurd to say that cobden was blind to such considerations on the contrary he showed himself alive to the fact that in the existing economy of civilization a nation must stand prepared if need be to defend its national existence by force of arms he did this when he separated himself decisively from the apostles of peace at any price he did it in a manner sufficiently emphatic when he declared that rather than suffer france to equalize her ships of war with ours he would vote one hundred million pounds to the navy estimates but then he did this wholly in the interests of national defence nor was there ever the slightest wavering in his policy that under all contingencies all other nations or tribes must be left to defend themselves or should it please them to make havoc of one another End of section 12